Hi, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to Schwepp, the secret history of Western Esotericism podcast online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 3, talking to Professor Wouter J. Hanegraaf of the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam. Wouter, thank you very much for being on the show. Very glad to be here. We've talked so far on the podcast about the basic contours of what we mean by Western esotericism in a very, very general way. And before we dive into the detailed historical narrative that this podcast will consist in, I wanted to talk to you about more overview, because you're one of the people that has written and and researched the most on not only a broad historical swathe of Western esoteric thinkers, but also theorized very much about what this field means um, you've helped build this field, in fact, in modern academe, the scholarly study of Western esotericism, and um, what we mean when we talk about it. So you're a perfect person to get a kind of general overview from high up. So you've written a book, which I think is a good place to start. Now, there's quite a few books out there that are, that are surveys of our field, but your book, Esotericism and the Academy, Rejected Knowledge in Western Culture, 2012 Cambridge University Press, is one of these overviews, but it also brings some new stuff. It has some new conclusions, some new positionings of the historical materials and so on. So maybe the most interesting thing to do would be first for you to introduce your book and tell us about the main thesis, what you, what you say in the book, and see where that leads us. Okay. All right. That's... It's not an easy question because it's a rather big book and a complex argument. So mm. uh, maybe it's good if I start with saying um, something about how I got into the field, because that is what I discuss in the introduction of mm. the book. And it's relevant to uh, to the conclusions that I draw. Uh, because I was studying uh, cultural history at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands in the 90s or the late 80s, actually. And uh, I was interested in all kinds of stuff and I didn't know exactly where I was going. Uh, one day I was looking up some books in the library. At that moment, there were open stacks, so, which is rare nowadays. And if those open stacks hadn't been there, then maybe I would have... I would not have ended up in the field that I'm doing now. So um, so I was there, I was looking for a book, and I saw another book standing there, which just somehow caught my interest. So I took it out, and it was a book by a German scholar, uh, Will Erich Peukert, and nobody in the English world knows about him. Uh, not, nothing has been translated. So I, uh, I read it, and um, the title was Pan-Sophie, a history of white and black magic, which sounded quite cool and interesting. So I, uh, so I, I was interested. So I started reading that, and it was largely about uh, a whole bunch of philosophers and religious thinkers and people that I'd never heard about. Uh, some names like the, like the Renaissance philosopher Marsilio Ficino, who, uh, as I learned there had translated all the works of Plato into Latin for the first time, but also translated the Corpus Hermeticum, about which we will talk later, maybe. Mm. And uh, I learned about um, Paracelsus, the 16th century physician, alchemist, medical thinker. And I learned about Jacob Böhme, the visionary, Protestant visionary in the early 17th century. And um, so all these people were were absolutely fascinating. I was wondering why is it that uh, that nobody has ever told me about the presence of these people, that they existed, what they did, and their ideas. Because I had followed secondary school like everybody else, I had gone to the university, and these these people just were not present in the narratives that I heard about, I'd never heard about them. But reading Poikert, I realized that these people were extremely important, 
influential. These were no minor figures. These are these were central figures in Western culture. So I thought something is wrong here. If they are so important, then I should have heard about them. So and they were of course interesting and fascinating. Their ideas just captivated me somehow. They were different. So. I started asking around with my professors, and uh, I said, I want to know more about Paracelsus, about Jacob Böhme and Marcello Ficino. And the response was very interesting. Basically, the first guy I asked said, uh, well, you know, yes, this this does exist, but I don't know anything about it. Maybe mm -hmm. you should talk with this other guy. So I went to this other guy, and he had exactly the same reaction. Said, yeah, 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 it does exist, but I don't know anything about it. You have to talk with another guy. So they kept tossing the t subject around like a hot potato to one another. Mm. And and before long, I realized that nobody uh, knew anything about this and that they somehow felt uncomfortable. There was, this was the kind of stuff that they were not comfortable discussing. It was somehow irrational. It was strange. It was superstitious. It was, they didn't want to talk Did about it. Did anyone warn you off, say, don't jeopardize your career. Don't get into this stuff. Fortunately not. Okay. But uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't have listened because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rather... <laughs> rather rebellious in this guy. I, I yeah. might actually have had, had the opposite effect, but nobody, nobody told me that. No. Uh, anyway, so so I got interested and I started reading about these things, and I realized that this was a major dimension of Western culture that I didn't know about. And this uh, realization is basically at the foundation, at the bottom, so to speak, of uh, the subtitle of the book that you asked me about, which is rejected knowledge in Western culture. I was asking myself, why is this stuff rejected in the academy? Why do people not study it? Why is it looked upon as something that you acknowledge it's there? It's the kind of an elephant in the room. You walk around it and you do, and you act as if it's not there. Why is that? That is what fascinated me. So I never got into it, just to make this clear from the beginning, uh, some people get into esotericism studies because they have some kind of personal uh, esoteric yeah, interest and they come from some kind of spiritual perspective. That's not what happened with me. I was completely ignorant about these things and I, I was just fascinated by the fact that nobody talked about it and I thought uh, I wanted to do something that made a contribution and I thought if this is a big field that is forgotten and overlooked, then well, there's work to be done instead of just writing the umptious book about the top, topic that many people have talked about, you can do something new. Mm. So that fascinated me. So, okay, I got into this. Then I realized at one point that I was research, although not that much. The, the scholar who stood out was a French scholar, Antoine Fevre, who had written some very good stuff. And so I, I got in touch uh, and uh, I learned that there were all kinds of networks of scholars who were actually doing research, but were somewhat, somewhat in the margins of uh, standard academia. This was, uh, this for me, it was irresistible. And then I decided, and I'm still not uh, to the book, but maybe it's relevant. Then I decided that um, I wanted to uh, do a PhD research and I had to pick a topic and I had to get it financed. That's a very practical matter. Yeah. And um, I realized if I do a dissertation about uh, Paracelsus or Jacob Böhme, very little chance that I will get it financed because this stuff is not considered very important and mm. relevant. So at the same time, there was, this was the late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot of interest in the so-called New Age movement at the time. And uh, I was walking into those bookshops sometimes. You saw all these weird books there about all kinds of topics. And I didn't know what to make of that. But I was sort of fascinated. What is this? I realized by this time that there was a connection. Uh, there was a connection between the stuff that Poika talked about and this New Age movement, but it was very different as well. So I thought, what is the connection? 
So I realized that there's a lot of popular interest in the New Age movement. I realized that I would probably be able to get funding about that. Mm. So uh, then I decided, okay, the New Age is going to be my topic, but it's uh, I saw it as a kind of a Trojan's horse, basically, because uh, the book I finally wrote, my dissertation, analyzed the literature of the New Age movement, its ideas, etc., and then tried to put them in an historical context. And that historical context, of course, was actually the kind of stuff that Poikat had been talking about. Right. So it uh, made it possible for me, me to talk about that kind of stuff as well. And then hopefully, I hoped, well, then I can concentrate on that if I go beyond the PhD. So, and it's actually happened like that. So that worked out well. So I, I finished the dissertation, it got published, I got a postdoc, and finally, okay, a lot of other things happened, but that's how I got into the field. So this is the background. Uh, the term rejected knowledge, which is in the subtitle of my book, was known already. It had been coined by an English historian, uh, James Webb, who had written two very good pioneering books uh, about the occult movements of the 19th and the 20th century. He had written them in the 70s, he died tragically very young he, he he committed suicide and so he never never developed beyond that book and a book about Khrushchev so these and books are the occult establishment and the occult underground right is that right? right those are the titles and this we'll was link to them on the website yes and this is uh, this is pioneering work uh, he really st studied this stuff very carefully and he coined the term as far as I know the term rejected knowledge uh, as a kind of general term for the occult of course, focusing on the 19th, 20th century, but I wanted to, to go further back and ask myself, okay, where does this come from? The Renaissance, okay, but where does the Renaissance come from? The Renaissance is the rebirth of currents and ideas that come from antiquity. So you have to cover the whole sweep from uh, from late antiquity, at least, to the present. So that is what Antoine Fevre was doing as well, although he was focusing mostly on the early modern to the present. I saw this large field in front of me, and I and I thought there there are no chairs for it, there are no programs, nobody's doing this. This has to be done. Okay. Now the book, in the book, I have after quite a number of years of doing research on this, I've sort of tried to create a kind of synthesis of my conclusions about this field in the book, and I came to the following conclusions. I tried to summarize this. First of all, it all begins, and that's chapter one. It all begins with a phenomenon in late antiquity that has been recognized but has not been given the attention that it deserves. And that is what I call platonic orientalism, and that's mm. a key term. The term platonic orientalism is a bit problematic because if you use the term orientalism, everybody thinks of Edward Said mm. and the orientalism debate, which is a large um, large debate, but not immediately relevant to what I'm talking about here. Yeah, much more relevant to 20th century politics, I would argue, and 20th century yeah. ways of thinking about us and them and this sort of thing. Exactly. And I do think that actually if you look at Edward Said's Orientalism and uh, then ultimately I think his his topic has to be seen in a much larger context, actually in the context that I'm talking about. I think he's, an, he's a chapter in a larger story. But that would take me somewhere else and we shouldn't go into there. Yep. But, so the term uh, Platonic Orientalism is a bit complicated because people immediately think, oh, it's about Edward Said. It's not about that. It's about something else. The term was coined by a specialist of the medieval Islamic mystic Surawardi, John Walbridge. But I took it up in my own way. Uh, what is Platonic Orientalism? It is a widespread idea in antiquity, especially in late antiquity, in the Hellenistic period. So then we're talking about the centuries, let's say, before and after the birth of Christ. And it's, it consists of two elements. It says, first of all, that Plato was not just a philosopher in the modern 
central to words. When we think of a philosopher, we think of somebody who is focusing on rationalism, on rational knowledge, and so on. Uh, that's, of course, how Plato has been understood as a founder of a, of a philosophy, and so on. And that's all true. But the public orientalist tradition says uh, that Plato was ultimately not so much just a philosopher, in the modern sense of the word, but uh, he was a religious thinker. Plato understood as, an, as somebody who gives a wisdom, an, mm. a religious or spiritual, if you want, a wisdom tradition, which is not just rational, but goes beyond reason, and it's about matters that ultimately have a an, have an, have an religious import. In other words, the ancients are including under what they call philosophy things that we would call religion. Right. It's right. not that they're saying Plato is religious. They're saying, no, Plato is a philosopher. And that includes... That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's very difficult to talk about these things. Because even if you if you use the term religion, that's another uh, a can of worms that I don't want to open here. But the definition of religion is problematic because our understanding of religion uh, are uh, quite recent. They come from the early modern periods. And so it's difficult to apply our term of religion to the, to antiquity. That's yeah. another matter. Same goes for philosophy. It's very complicated. So all yeah. these terms uh, carry modern connotations now. Mm. It's, if you apply them to antiquity, then they don't work as well anymore. And they right. can be very misleading. So the, that's one of the problems. But let's say as a, as a first-order term, philosophy in late antiquity yeah. includes what we would call, what we would say as second-order terms, are philosophy, but also religion. That's right. It's, it's of course, uh, the, the love of wisdom, uh, mm. you know, literally. The term was coined by uh, Plato, not by Pythagoras, as, as sometimes assumed. Just to stay with this first element of Platonic Orientalism, because I said there were two elements. I will come back to the second. The first element, Plato as a, as a religious or spiritual thinker, whatever you want to call it exactly. There is a famous passage in the in the Phaedrus, uh, one of the great uh, dialogues of Plato, which uh, sort of defines what the philosopher is. And Plato says, or of course Socrates actually says, that the philosopher is rebuked by the multitude, by the big masses of people. They don't understand him, they don't like him, they find he's weird, because he's just standing there and and he seems to be crazy in their mind. So this is not the picture of the armchair philosopher, the rationalist. This is the picture of a guy who looks weird and crazy, uh, who seems to be in another world in his mind somehow. And they, and this is Socrates. This is Plato. He says he, uh, the philosopher is standing there and the, the multitude doesn't like him. They think he's weird. They think he's, he's crazy because they do not know that he is full of God. And the Greek word uh, is the basis of our term enthusiasm. And enthusiasm means that you have a divine force inside of you. That is what Plato, Socrates, says. So what he says is the, the true philosopher is filled by the divine, filled by a divine force. That's the true philosopher. That is, that is not your typical modern rationalist. And this is not an uh, anecdotal thing in Plato. If you look at, uh, at the symposium and many other places, it's a long story. This, uh, this, this understanding of what a search for wisdom really is, uh, is actually uh, present very clearly in Plato. So in saying this, I'm, as you understand, I'm actually endorsing the Platonic uh, Orientalist perspective. It's, this was a perspective that was widespread, and I think it is actually true. Platonic tradition and Socrates as well had a very strong religious dimension, and many philosophers in late antiquity understood that. That's the first thing. Then, uh, so Plato as not only a philosopher, but also a religious or spiritual thinker. If, that's the first thing. The second thing is where did that wisdom come from? 
second element of Platonic Orientalism is that you say Plato was not the originator of this tradition. He was just somebody in a chain of inspired wise men, sages, that goes back uh, much further. And in Platonic Orientalism, the assumption is that the ultimate source of this divine wisdom is somewhere in the East. That's why it's Platonic Orientalism. And sometimes the ultimate source is found in Persia, uh, with Zoroaster, Zarathustra is seen as the ultimate source. Others say that the origin is in Egypt, and then it's usually Hermes, Trismegistus, the thrice greatest Hermes, yep. who's seen as the originator. Uh, yet others were saying, no, it's in the in the Hebrews, that's in Moses. But it's always said that these are non-Greek people. It's they, not the Greeks, they're anyway. Not the Greeks, although Pythagoras sometimes is mentioned as well. Mm. But, uh, but, but usually it's... He in Egypt or with, the, yeah. or with the Brahmans or both. Yeah, so it there is this Egypt. whole notion, yeah, it comes somewhere from the East. And we have to be very careful because uh, the very term, the Orient and the East, carries notions, carries connotations nowadays. I don't want to go there now. But um, so this idea that, that there is this somehow oriental wisdom that's very, very old, that is passed on through the ages, it finally reaches Plato. Plato becomes the biggest representative, so to speak, of this old wisdom tradition. That's the notion, that's the idea, that's a Platonic Orientalism. Now, about the first point, that Plato was uh, partly a religious thinker, I would agree. About the second point, whether he is actually coming from these ancient wisdom teachers, that's another matter, and that is not so clear whether that's true, but people believe that, and that's the important thing. So, there is this Platonic Orientalist tradition. Now, what happens is that this tradition gets gets assimilated in Christianity, and that's uh, crucial, because the church fathers are faced with a large problem, this is well known, that uh, if you just look at the words of Jesus, it's not possible to, to base an, an theology on that, yeah. because there's no theology there. And of course, uh, you get Paul, and Paul starts creating a theology and so on. But very soon, of course, in order to create a theological system, you need to have, an, uh, have a background, and the background is Platonism, right. uh, you know, generally speaking. So, so the church fathers are taking Platonic concepts and ideas and traditions in order to understand for them what the gospel message actually means and what the message of Christianity really means. So they are drawing to a great extent on traditions that I would call Platonic Orientalism. So Platonic Orientalism becomes a part of Christianity. Now why is this happening? And a very important part of it is this. Uh, The Christians were faced with a huge problem, intellectual problem, namely the fact that um, in their period the general assumption everywhere among intellectuals was that something that's new that's very recent, cannot be true. Uh, that runs counter to our modern progressivist ideas. We think new ideas might be better than the uh, than old ones. In this period, that was not the case. That was unheard of. Mm. Uh, if you want to have an, uh, an authoritative uh, worldview, whether religious or philosoph- philosophical, then you must prove that this is very old. This has always been said through the ages. Well, that was a problem for Christians, obviously, because they were basing themselves on an, uh, on on a guy who was uh, who was killed just quite recently, uh, crucified, and so this was recent. And of course, their pagan opponents, guys like Celsus or Porphyry and others, they they said, well, I mean, get out of here. This is this is just very very recent. You claim that this is the superior religion. And it happened, it, it all originated just two centuries ago yeah. or so. That, that's not serious. You can't be serious. And the Christians themselves, the church fathers, they understood this and they, they had the same problem. They agreed with that. So they were looking for all the sources. So Christian, Christianity could not have started just with Christ. 
uh, it had to be older. And in order to uh, make that argument, they were drawn on the Platonic Orientalist tradition and ultimately came up with the idea there are these ancient Oriental sources of wisdom. That same wisdom is taken over by the Christians and uh, Christianity. Even uh, Augustine, in a late work, Saint Augustine himself, the most influential author on, on the medieval Christianity, I would say. In the at West. At least anyway. for a long time. At least in the West, you're quite right. Uh, but, okay, let's stick, uh, stick to the West for now. That's, so even Augustine says at one point that Christianity was new, not new. It was an old religion. It already existed before Jesus. And the old religion that was always true, we now call it Christianity. There's this perennial wisdom. And that's what you find in Augustine even. So where does it come from then? Of course, then uh, the pagans would say, okay, uh, some would say it's, it's Hermes Trismegistus, the Egyptian sage. Others, others would say it's Sarvaster, who was seen as the originator of magic. This is not the way that uh, church fathers were going. They say, no, the ancient source of wisdom is Moses. So, um, so you get a mosaic interpretation of Platonic Orientalism. But this mosaic interpretation does carry the, also the idea that the wisdom of Moses got spread among the peoples. Uh, so it is quite quite possible that you will find true wisdom among the Egyptians and Hermes, among the Persians uh, with, uh, with Zoroaster and so on, because this wisdom got spread. So and they all learned from Moses. They all learned from Moses. Right. Moses is the original source. So it's possible and it's actually uh, legitimate to look for sparks of the true wisdom in any kind of pagan sources. If it's compatible with Christianity, then it must have come from Moses. If it's not compatible, then we reject it. But so this opens the floor for taking pagan sources uh, seriously and studying them as possibly containing Christian truth. And you find this, for instance, in uh, Lactantius, who is very clear about how enthusiastic he is about Hermes Trismegistus. He finds the he finds the Christian wisdom there. And okay, there are many other examples that you could mention. This was controversial because other church fathers are very strict in saying, no, pagan wisdom is of the devil, so to speak, and uh, it's not compatible with Christianity. But there's a very strong tradition of Platonic Orientalism that got ingrained, so to speak, in Christian theology. Right. So you yeah. have this sort of early Christian fathers who in various ways are trying to appropriate Hellenism, the, tra yes. the tradition of education yeah. of the Greco-Roman world, and others who are rejecting it. Even right. the ones who reject it are also, of course, importing Platonist ideas without even knowing they're doing so, because yeah. just because the Nicene Creed and other... But sometimes also are. very explicitly, if you look yeah. at uh, Lord Augusta, the famous eighth book of uh, The City of God, his big, mm. big work, is all about the Platonists, and, he's, and he says that um, yeah, the Platonists, uh, who are of course pagans in his eyes, uh, have come, come closest to us, the Christians, of all other thinkers and so and of course it's well known that he uh, that there's a lot of platonism in in, in augusta so so this this uh, this tradition is there that's platonic orientalism so let's go back just to recap we've been through the development of platonic orientalism within philosophic platonism and now also spreading out into christianity I think it's fair to say as well that if we look at our materials from that time, we get a sense, which is difficult to document, but this has become kind of a general worldview. Probably even your lay people who aren't writing heavy philosophical texts also have a, some kind of idea that there is yeah. an ancient wisdom. Right. And that everyone is playing in the same field, that the Christians, the pagans, other people will end up talking about like Gnostics and right. maybe the Hermetists, whoever they were, yeah. all have this idea. 
and yeah. they're all using it in different ways to push their own agenda. Yeah, and in different ways because there are big differences between the so-called Gnostics and the Hermetists. I mean, there are many differences, but uh, yeah, this so is very widespread. Now we're in late antiquity. How are we going to move forward to Ficino? Say? Exactly. Uh, I was coming to Ficino. That was the next point in my in my narrative. Yeah, because what happens then? We we fast forward to the 15th century. We end up in Florence, or rather, we should perhaps start a little bit earlier even. In, in the early, um, early 15th century, at one point there is, the, there is a council, a church council that is, uh, that is taking place. You have to see the historical and the, and the, and the political background here. Uh, this is a situation where, uh, where the Byzantine Empire is being threatened by the Ottoman armies, the Muslims who are, uh, who are advancing and uh, threatening to overrun Christianity in the East. And this hasn't happened yet, but it's a big danger. There's a lot of concern, of course, also in the West. Uh, there is this fear that Islam is going to wash over uh, Christianity. And uh, the Eastern and the Western churches feel that, that uh, maybe it's good to just unite or to find a way of maybe reuniting and making a common, common resistance against, uh, against this threat. So council is organized um, in the early uh, 15th century in which the, the Eastern representatives of, of Byzantium, of, the, of Eastern Christianity, are invited to come over to uh, Italy and meet up with Western Christianity uh, under the leadership of the Pope. This is the, this is the Council of Ferrara and uh, Florence. And in the party that, uh, that travels from, from Byzantium to Italy, uh, there is an important philosopher. Uh, his name is, uh, is Georgius Chemistos. He would henceforth come to be known as Plethon. And Plethon is a name he adopted himself, which indicates that he thought of himself as a kind of a second Plato. Mm. Plato. Plethon. Um, this man was already around 80 years old. Uh, he, has, he was a well-known philosopher in Byzantium. He wasn't, wasn't uh, giving advice to the rulers. He was not very interested in the agenda of uniting Eastern and Western Christianity at all, but he had to come uh, for political reasons and so on. But he found that he felt very good in the, in the context of the, of the humanist circles in, um, in Florence, because humanists there were very enthusiastic at the time about uh, reviving um, ancient Greek traditions. Here you had a guy who, uh, who uh, spoke Greek, who, who was able to read Plato and Aristotle in the original because it was his language, who knew them, who knew the sources that did, they did not know because very little was known about Plato and Aristotle actually in the West at this time. Right. Uh, from Plato they knew the Timaeus one, uh, but very little else. Um, Aristotle was mostly known secondhand. Through Arab sources. Through basically. Arab sources, Averroes and others. So, yes, there was, very, there was great interest in Plato and Aristotle, but very little knowledge. And here you had a guy who actually knew the sources from his own, uh, who could read them in his own language and who could talk about them. Now, there, is, there are all the romantic stories about the arrival of Plethon in Florence, this bearded old man, the embodiment of uh, wisdom who's speaking there to all the pupils and everybody listening to him. Well, actually... The reality is a little bit less romantic because he did not speak uh, Italian or Latin. Uh, they didn't speak Greek, so everything had to go through, uh, through translators. But anyway, he made, an, made a big impression. He wrote a text about the relation of Plato and Aristotle, which basically says that everything that uh, Aristotle uh, has right is in agreement with Plato, and everything, everywhere where he diverges from Plato is wrong. So he was a Platonist, uh, and he includes uh, Aristotle in in the larger, larger Platonic framework. 
And he also, and that's important, he also believed that uh, he was a strong advocate of Platonic Orientalism. He believed that Plato's wisdom was much older and it had come from Zoroaster. Uh, so he was an advocate of the Zoroastrian, not a mosaic, but the Zoroastrian interpretation of Platonic uh, Orientalism. There was an, a couple of an, an collection of texts, the Chaldean oracles, that we now know come from the first centuries of the Christian era. But um, they were believed to be much older, and he said they were written by uh, by Zoroaster. So now you had an ancient uh, source, Chaldean oracles. They were supposed to be the source of Plato. And um, well, this was very exciting to the humanist. And um, so he made a big stir. The council ended uh, unsuccessfully. The unification of East and West didn't happen. And later, the, later Byzantium was overrun by the, by the Ottoman or, the armies. And what happened then is that a lot of manuscripts, Greek manuscripts that had been there in archives, were saved and were brought to the West because uh, Christians didn't want them to fall in the hands of the, of the, of the Muslims. So... That happened. One person who had been present at the council was uh, Cosimo de' Medici, who was uh, very young at that time, quite young at the time, and later became the ruler of Florence, the city of the Renaissance. So, fast forward to the to the early 60s, uh, let's say around 14, 1460, manuscripts are coming, are flooding in. Of Plato's manuscripts are arriving for the first time in Italy, in, in, in Greek, Greek yeah. and he cannot read them. Um, then, uh, but he wants to read them because he has learned that this is very important. And then he meets this uh, young uh, humanist scholar, Marcello Ficino, who was a great lover of, uh, of Plato. He was very enthusiastic about it. Cosimo de' Medici understands the, the talent of Ficino. He gives him a salary, he gives him a villa, and he gives him the manuscripts of Plato. And he said, you sit down and you start translating Plato cover to cover uh, from Greek into Latin. So that is what Ficino does for the couple, next couple of years. And, this, and he becomes the first translator of the complete works of Plato into Latin. This becomes the foundation of the revival of Platonism in, uh, in the West. Crucial foundation for the Renaissance as a whole. And I have to say, I always say this, and I have to say it again, uh, Ficino is not very well known among historians of philosophy. Usually, uh, modern historians of philosophy tend to think, well, real philosophy starts with, let's say, Descartes and so on. And Ficino is not a real philosopher. That's nonsense. That's complete nonsense. Historically, I would say Ficino is an extremely important, uh, important figure in the history of philosophy in the 15th century, because without his work, Plato would not have had the enormous impact that it had in the Renaissance. It was not only that he translated the works of Plato, he wrote large commentaries, and he went on uh, also uh, translating and commenting upon other, other Platonic, uh, so-called Neoplatonic authors and so on. So this is an enormous activity that he, he developed. Now, part of uh, his work at one point in uh, 1463, he was in the middle of Plato, then a manuscript arrives uh, in Florence of the Corpus Hermeticum, and um, dun, dun, dun. yeah, the Corpus Hermeticum. Now, what's the Corpus Hermeticum? I already mentioned earlier that uh, one of the candidates for the most ancient source of wisdom was uh, Hermes Trismegistus, a kind of legendary wise man, an ancient sage who was supposed to have lived in very, very ancient times in Egypt and um, who was supposed to be the author of this so-called Corpus Hermeticum, a collection of writings 
attributed to Hermes. So it had, it had always been assumed that next to Zoroaster, this is another possible source of ancient wisdom. Now these texts arrived, arrived next to Plato in Florence. They are supposed to be older than Plato, and Plato is supposed to be dependent on them. So he tells Ficino, interrupt Plato for a moment to read and translate Hermes first, because this is the source. So uh, Ficino does this, and he translates it quickly and not so well, actually. Uh, there's a lot to be said about it. Uh, uh, there's reason to assume that he did not really understand it as well as he could have. We he was in a hurry. Yeah, he, has, he was in a hurry to, to get back to to Plato. May, later we can talk about our metric tradition. So this is part of it. It's, it gets translated in 1471. Uh, there are two editions and it gets, uh, so the Corpus Hermeticum uh, yeah, becomes a kind of a bestseller, you might say, in the 15th and the 16th century. So now you have the Chaldean oracles, the ancient wisdom of Zoroaster. You have the um, Corpus Hermeticum, the ancient wisdom of Hermes. All of them supposed to, to be sources for Plato. And then there, there's the third one, which is Moses. Right. Now, Moses is a different story. What happens is this, and I think this is extremely important. There is a contemporary of Ficino, a guy called Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, a um, very wealthy nobleman, noble family, has a lot of money, and um, he is a kind of an intellectual prodigy, extremely smart, uh, almost a photographic memory. He is, uh, he is reading all the ancient wisdom literature you know philosophy science anything uh, he's reading everything he's remembering everything is an enormous memory and when he is just over 20 years old he feels that he knows it all he understands it all and he is able he is convinced that he's able to unify everything that needs to be unified this is the this is the end of the 15th century. The, the Christian church is in big trouble. Just uh, 20 years later, you have the Reformation, and that is, that is coming. Uh, the, the church is in trouble. The, it is, it's, it's necessary to unify all the kind of opposing tendencies that are breaking, breaking Western culture apart, if you might put it that way. He thinks that he can unify Plato and Aristotle, and he can also unify uh, secular philosophy, if you want, with sacred wisdom, with the sacred wisdom of Christianity. He can also unify uh, Jewish and Christian wisdom. He thinks he can bring everything together in one big synthesis. He um, writes 900 theses, that was a common way of making your point at the time. You, you formulated some thesis, usually nine or ten or something like that, and then you defended them in public. But right. he is megalomaniac. He, uh, he, uh, he writes 900 theses. That's incredible. 900 theses about everything you could think of that is intellectually important and relevant in philosophy, in theology, in natural science, whatever. Geometry, and, Kabbalah, uh, of course. And, yes, and, there, and, it, and very important is that he also includes Kabbalistic theses. Yeah. And Kabbalah is the term for the Jewish, let's say, mystical tradition or esoteric tradition, if you want. Now, the situation is this. 900 theses in which he makes all these claims in which he tries to show that all the supposed conflicts between all these currents are only only seem to be conflicts but actually it's possible to to harmonize everything in one big synthesis he wants to uh, organize a big debate an enormous debate he is uh, he wants to invite all the intellectuals from all over europe to rome and he imagines that uh, then under the leadership, under the presidency of the Pope himself, these people will go uh, enter into a big debate about his 900 theses. He will answer them and he will uh, convince everybody. Uh, finally, and at the end of the big debate, 
he will have convinced all the theologians and philosophers and intellectuals of Europe about how to uh, resolve all the conflicts that have plagued uh, intellectuals for centuries and centuries. Obviously, this is megalomania on the largest level. Uh, it's, it's megalomania we will see again and again in the history of Western esoterics, oh, yeah. to some degree. Oh, yeah. So we shouldn't yeah. think that these thinkers are, are happy to stay on the fringes of the mainstream. Often they want to step forward and take the mainstream by force and say, okay, the real wisdom... I'm, yep. I'm going to lay it out for you. This right. is what it is. Absolutely. Here comes the great inspiration or whatever. Absolutely. This they just is, fail to do yes, so. This is, this is the search for absolute knowledge or absolute perfect knowledge. The understanding that we know and we have figured it out and we, we can now tell you perfect knowledge, which basically resolves everything and nothing, there's nothing left to be explored. Hmm. Basically, this kind of, this, this big claims. Yes, you find it again and again, but uh, Pico is a very strong case. So that's what he wants, and he writes an, uh, write a big speech, the Oratio, later, later titled the Oratio on the Dignity of Man, supposed to be the opening speech, and then the debate, debate would begin. It's a, it has become a famous uh, speech that has been seen as, as a typical example of the new Renaissance spirit. It's very famous. Well, it doesn't work out the way he expects, because the Pope uh, very quickly condemns a whole number of the, of the theses, and then when Pico protests and says, well, this is actually Christianity, and said, well, well, forget it, and condemns all 900. So it's a big disaster. He has to flee. And so nothing ever comes of the debate and so on. Okay, but what was he actually saying And uh, in his thesis and um, in his speech and his later defense of it? He's making a big synthesis, which is very relevant for the history of Platonic Orientalism, because what he says is this. And it's spectacular. It is spectacular. The church fathers had already said uh, there is this ancient wisdom. It comes from Moses and then it passed on and it ends into Christianity. Christianity inherits the wisdom of the Jews and also, also incorporates the Platonic tradition. Okay, he says the same thing. However, he adds something. This is a period when in, uh, in Spain, uh, Spain is uh, under the leadership of King Ferdinand and Queen uh, Isabella, who have started a uh, radical uh, Roman Catholic offensive against both the Jews and the Muslims there. Mm. And it's well known that, uh, that, that especially the Spanish Peninsula was a culture uh, in which, Ju uh, which Judaism, Christianity and Islam were in very close contact and interaction. Yeah, uh, we will have a lot to say about that place and that period in this podcast. Is right, right. It's a very it. important moment. And uh, so what happens is a purge, basically. The Jews are chased out of, out of Spain later, early 16th century, the Muslims as well. So what happens, this is a tragic, that is a, this is a tragic moment uh, in many ways, obviously. However, in terms of intellectual history, it has been a very good thing. And it uh, often happens that uh, tragical military disasters, the bloodbaths, actually have an effect that is culturally fruitful. The same happened with the Ottoman conquest of Byzantium, which basically led to the rediscovery of the Platonic writings in the West, as I just explained. Same thing happens here, because what happens? Uh, many Jews arrive uh, from Spain into Italy because they have to flee. Many of them are, many of them, part of them are Kabbalists, specialists in the, in the Kabbalistic Jewish esoteric traditions. They arrive in Italy, and Pico della Miranda has gotten in touch with them. He is interested. He wants to learn from them. He learns Hebrew, and he has a couple of uh, Hebrew teachers who teach him the Jewish wisdom. And that becomes a very important part of his big synthesis. And the narrative is this, and that is something completely new. He takes up the 
mosaic interpretation of Platonic Orientalism that was already to be found in the Church Fathers. But he adds something important. It was not just Moses. What happened, he says, at a revelation at Mount Sinai, that you found, which you found, of course, in the, in the Old Testament, at that moment, Moses receives actually two bodies of knowledge. One is the commandments for the large people, and that is what we all know. But he also receives a secret, a secret message from God, a secret wisdom, an esoteric wisdom that is uh, meant only for the elite, and that is not made public. So, and this uh, secret esoteric wisdom is the Kabbalah. That is what Pico says. Moses receives it from God directly. He makes it known to the elders, so to speak, he, and it gets spread from there on, it moves forward. But the Kabbalah is at the origin of the ancient wisdom tradition of Platonic Orientalism. Right. So, so now you have actually the Kabbalah. Now, what he doesn't understand, because historically this makes no sense, but he cannot know that, we know that now, that the sources that he's talking about, the Kabbalistic sources, are medieval. Right. Medieval sources, we know that now. He didn't know that. Uh, he thought that these were, so the, the sources that he learned about from his Jewish teachers who came from, from Spain, those sources, he believed, were the actual remnants of the original mosaic, uh, mosaic revelation. So this medieval Jewish Kabbalistic tradition is now made into the ultimate source of the mosaic tradition. That's spectacular. So, and he says, and he tells, uh, he tells his listeners, his audience, that um, the true nature of the Christian, the ancient Christian uh, tradition, has remained unknown to the Christians up to this very day. Up to this very day, the Catholics, the Pope, the theologians, nobody has the clue for the true core, the true source of Christianity. I have discovered this for the first time. This core wisdom, the Kabbalah, has been kept by the Jews. But the Jews didn't understand that what they were preserving is actually God's message, which is actually compatible with Christianity. And this is the, this is the point. He does not say the origins of Christianity are Jewish. What he is saying is that the Jews, uh, Moses, uh, received the true wisdom from God. He assumes that, of course, Christians have the true religion, therefore the true message must have been a Christian message. So uh, Moses was revealing the Christian dogmas to Moses. We understand them now as all the Christian dogmas, but the Jews didn't understand them, he says. And this became the Kabbalah. But if you read the Kabbalah well, then you understand that actually, and he's very explicit about this in the Oratio, he says, when I read the Kabbalistic text, I do not find Jewish non-Christian wisdom. I find all the dogmas of Christianity in the Kabbalah itself. Now, of course, they are not there. They are not there. This is what he imagines. And now we say, no, no, no. Uh, so but at that time, he was convinced of this. And this is extremely, uh, this is spectacular because it means that the Christians who believe him, and many do, now believe, okay, I can study the Kabbalah and I will find the core message there that makes it possible for me to unify all the divergent traditions of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So the Kabbalah becomes the core, the clue, the, the key for uh, understanding Christianity itself. We will have to fast forward now a little bit. How do we get then from Pico yeah. and Ficino, let's say, so from the Renaissance and this new synthesizing thing that's going on, yeah. To what's going to flow out of that, yeah. which is kind of Western esotericism proper. Right, right. And I'll try to be a bit shorter here. 
one thing that happens here is that uh, that Christian uh, intellectuals now start learning about the exegetical techniques of Jewish Kabbalah, uh, ways of uh, ways of explaining the scripture. And Kabbalists had been using these techniques, for instance, manipulation of letters and numbers, uh, known as gematria. They had used these techniques for many centuries to understand the Torah. Now that um, the idea is that these are the Kabbalistic techniques and they're actually relevant to, to Christianity, Christians start to apply them also to the New Testament. So and you're to, sort of blowing the, the doors of interpretation off their hinges. Absolutely. You can just dive into a text and find all manner of esoteric meanings. Absolutely. And so now the idea is that actually we have found this new exegetical method and suddenly all the texts that we seemed to understand so well turn out to have many hidden layers of meaning, mm. meanings that we had never imagined, never suspected were there, and suddenly they came up. So this is incredibly uh, fascinating for Christians because they really believe that they have found the exegetical key for understanding the esoteric message of Christianity that they've never understood until now. Yeah. So this, this is fascinating to many people. Many people take this up, and this is what this leads to what we call the Christian Kabbalah, Christian Kabbalistic tradition. Furthermore, these kind of exegetical techniques also start being applied to the understanding of nature. So basically, the idea is that you have the book of Revelation, the Bible, and you have the book of nature. And the book of nature is written in a script. That's an old idea. God has written his, in his invisible handwriting, so to speak, in the book of nature. And now there is this new idea that these new techniques, these new exegetical methods, make it possible to unravel, to decipher even not only the meaning of scripture, Old the New Testament, but the meaning of nature as well. So all of this is extremely exciting and it leads to fantastical buildings. I mean, not built upon anything solid, I have to say, because all of this is based upon misdated sources, but it's a big spectacle of, of intellectual creativity and it's fascinating, it leads to new ideas. Now, fast forward, we move into the 17th century, the, the emergence of the scientific revolution, obviously, and many things related to, to that. And uh, these kind of currents become integral parts of intellectual life in the 16th and the 17th century up to the 18th century. It's very complicated. You have Rosicrucian movements, you have Christian theosophical movements, you have all kinds of heretical currents, you have intellectual um, speculations of all kinds, some of which are seen as heretical, some of which are seen as, uh, as orthodox, according to whom you're talking with. It gets very, very complicated. And Western Christianity in this period, crucially, also splits in a multitude of ways so yes the catholics may say one thing is uh, heretical and the lutherans say no no quite the opposite right. it's the definition of mainstream and you suddenly have yes. a huge fragment fragmenting of christian discourse right in and, europe and, yes and then we end up then we get uh, to the crucial next part of the story that i'm still trying to tell although i'm diverging sometimes a bit and that is the confrontation between uh, Roman Catholicism and, and Protestantism mm -hmm. and the relevance to Western esotericism. What happens is this, that uh, at the end of the 16th century, you get first, in the, interestingly, in the Counter-Reformation, so on the Roman Catholic side, you get some authors, major cases, a guy called the Giambattista Crispo, who writes a big book, a Counter-Reformation book, in which he says that the origin of all heresies is Plato. And uh, Plato is the core author of heresies. He has this military metaphors. He says that's fascinating. He says basically when Christianity was victorious over paganism in the first centuries, well, the pagans lost and the Christians won. And the Christians should have been radical. They should have killed everybody. 
they should have left nobody alive. Wow. They should not have, and he's talking metaphorically here, so he should have, they should have given no quarter to the pagans. But what he actually did, one, and this is a metaphor he, he uses, they captured Plato, metaphorically. Plato as the representative of um, all the kind of pagan, anti-Christian uh, currents. So Plato is the enemy here, not as the friend of Christianity. Plato is the core of all heresies. They captured him and they should have killed him and they should not, not have listened to him, but they kept him alive. And because of his inborn natural eloquence, he started to, and his great intelligence, he started to influence his captors. And he started to tell them about what he thought and they were taking him seriously. They were listening to him. And basically what happens is that the Christians made the enormous mistake, Crispo says, of listening to Plato, using platonic ideas to understand what the Christian message was all about. And in this way, the virus of heresy has spread through Christianity and has led to, to the degeneration of the true message. So Plato no longer as a source of wisdom, but Plato as a source of error. Interestingly, you find this in a counter-reformation guy who did not realize that he was giving the Protestant enemies of Roman Catholicism all the weapons that they needed mm. because this idea is taken over then by Protestant thinkers in the 17th century and they are arguing that, well, who was it who invited and accepted the virus of, of paganism, of platonic paganism into Christianity? Well, it was the church fathers. Right. Those church fathers, they, they made a mistake. They are responsible for the, for the degeneration of Christianity. They got everything wrong. They introduced Plato. They should have kicked him out. So they, they started with an incredible polemical battle against the influence of the church fathers and their Platonizing interpretations. And they want to get back to the pure gospel message in the Bible, uncontaminated by pagan platonic ideas. That is the agenda. And this, is, um, this agenda is known since some time as uh, anti-apologeticism anti-apologeticism right. and the term has to be explained because it's when you use the term apologeticism this refers to the ancient apologetic tradition of the ancient church fathers who wanted to uh, explain the truth of Christianity to their pagan opponents by saying actually Christianity is compatible with Platonism and with pagan wisdom right. that is the, the apologetic agenda of the early church fathers so these anti-apologeticists are against that agenda they are themselves apologists of, of Protestants understanding of Christianity but if you call it anti-apologeticism then you have to understand it as directed against the dominant Roman Catholic idea so these, these uh, anti-apologetic authors, there's a couple of people, especially in Germany, who start writing these kind of arguments. And their point is, in order to get back to the true message of Christianity, you have to go back straight to the Bible itself. That is the word of God. And you have to clean it of any merely human accretions and misunderstandings. And all of them come from the contamination of pagan philosophical traditions, especially from Platonism. So it's a deep Platonization of Christianity that's needed. That's the argument. This becomes very influential. Uh, so, you, so now you have a kind of frontal battle between two camps. And you see this in, um, in the church histories that are being written in the 16th century. There is a famous large church history on the Catholic side by Cesare Baronius, many volumes, one, uh, one volume, volume for each century, which basically tells the narrative of how Christianity inherited the ancient wisdom and has been the, 
home of all true wisdom through the ages, the perennial wisdom narrative, basically. And then you get uh, the so-called Magdeburg centuries, which is the Protestant counterpart of Baronius, which tells exactly the opposite story. Again, one volume for each century, exactly the same thing. But they are saying, okay, they're telling a different story. They are showing how in the first centuries, the pure gospel message is still there. Uh, the early apostolic community still has it right. And then you see the infiltration of platonic pagan ideas into Christianity. And then you start the degeneration. And it gets very serious when the papacy is installed and the, and the Pope is the Antichrist sitting on the throne of Christ. And basically the whole history of Christianity is painted as one large process of degeneration in which Christianity is taken over by the Antichrist by the demons, by the pagans. And so now what we're doing, they are saying the Protestants are cleaning up the mess, to quote modern contemporary political language. They're cleaning up the mess and they want to go back to the pure message. So this is the frontal assault on Platonism, on ancient wisdom discourse and everything related to that. If I can wrap things up and bring things back to Western esotericism specifically, yes, yes, you yes. beautifully outlined this, this broad polemical warfare that's going on in the Reformation. On page 78 of your book, you say, the field of research nowadays referred to as Western esotericism first began to be conceived and conceptualized as a domain in its own right by the so-called anti-apologetic authors of the 17th century. That's right. So we know what the, who the anti-apologetics are now. How do they first identify Western esotericism? Because this brings us really right, to the crux right, of your book right. which, and what I think Excellent. is very new about your book. Absolutely. Uh, they don't use the term Western esotericism. Okay. They use other terms. It's uh, pagan, uh, pagan perversion, it is Platonism. They use all kinds of terms. Uh, but, uh, but if we look at it now, then, then it's very clear that all the currents that we now consider to be part of esotericism are actually the same currents that they are talking about. Right. So they're talking about Ficino, they're talking about uh, Kabbalah, they're talking about magical currents, they talk about uh, well everything that we now study as, as esotericism is actually what they are talking about. But they don't, don't use the term yet. The term comes only in the 19th century. But the field is, they perceive a field, a tradition. Uh, they create the idea that there is this big tradition this counter-tradition of darkness, this genealogy of darkness. It starts with the devil who started working in ancient paganism to, to seduce everybody, and then he starts to infiltrate even the church. And it's one big story of, of the operations of the demons who are behind paganism and who try to lead us away constantly from the true message of Christ. That's the story. Now, what happens now if we move to Western esotericism is that this basic anti-apologetic notion of a genealogy, of superstition, of darkness, of magic, and of, of everything that's wrong. That uh, narrative is taken over by the Enlightenment philosophers. And that happens already in the 17th century, but very clearly the 18th century. So the mainstream Enlightenment thinkers that are creating the foundations for the modern world, basically, they have taken over this narrative straight from the anti-apologeticists. But there's one big difference, because the Enlightenment, of course, Early Enlightenment uh, thinkers are often still Christians, and they are often, very often, Protestants. So they, that is how it's, it makes it understandable why why they can take this over. But uh, eventually, the kind of currents that in the narrative of the anti-apologists are seen as demonic, steered directly by the devil, 
for the enlightenment, uh, typical enlightenment thing is eventually becomes just superstition, just nonsense, just uh, just stupidity. There are several histories of stupidity written in the in the later 18th century, but the most important book. Uh, for the history of esotericism is a book written by Jacob Brucker, whom I think should be a household name. Everybody should know the name Brucker. He's extremely important, but he's forgotten. Jacob Brucker wrote the most important history of uh, of philosophy that had ever been written, maybe, and that is one of the foundations of modern histories of philosophy. And what Brucker does, this big history of, of philosophy, not the history of Christianity, his history of philosophy, is written by Brucker. Brucker is a staunch Protestant, so and see, he takes a lot of his his ideas from the anti-apology thinkers, but he's writing about philosophy. That's his topic. Now, he actually makes a distinction between three strands. One is the religious truth, which is the Bible. The Bible straight from cover to cover. If you want to know the truth, the religious truth, God has given it to you in the Bible. That's it. That's simple. He is an Enlightenment thinker, which is also a Protestant, which is quite normal in this time. Because we think that Enlightenment thinkers must be against Christianity, but that's not the case. Not no, that, there was a radical period. atheist wing later yeah, on, but that it's not later. the mainstream. But that is not the mainstream at this time. So he's a Protestant uh, Enlightenment thinker. So, okay, you have the Bible. Now, then, then there are two other strands which are important for his book, for the book, the book that he writes. He basically says there are two traditions. There is true philosophy, and true philosophy is based upon the uh, use of the human rational faculties in order to find answers to important questions. And this is a good thing. This is something that he recommends. You know, philosophy is good. Protestants should be totally okay with uh, rationalism because reason is a faculty that God has given to man. It, it just should not let it interfere with faith. There are truths of faith which you find in the Bible. Whether they're rational or not, you have to believe them. But uh, there's the whole domain of rational inquiry, which is legitimate. It should not be applied to the Bible because that is sacrosanct. But everything else can be uh, can be explored by the human rational faculties and by science as well. And so that's true philosophy for him. And then he starts writing a history, starting with actually with the Old Testament. For him, it all starts even with Noah already, uh, the first philosophers. Okay, but then then he writes a history up to his own time with incredible learning, extremely complicated and very he's an extremely learned man. He traces the history of philosophy with each and every uh, philosopher. He asks himself, okay, what is this guy actually doing? Is he is ar- is he arguing rationally? Or is he not? If he is arguing rationally, then he's okay and he belongs to true philosophy. If he's not, why is he not arguing rationally? The, the reason is always the same. He is seduced. He's being seduced by non-Christian uh, religious ideas. Where do these religious ideas come from? From paganism and especially from Platonism. So there's the counter tradition uh, of philosophy that looks like philosophy but it's actually pseudo-philosophy, it's false philosophy, it's not really rational it's uh, crypto-paganism it looks like philosophy, it's actually pagan religion in disguise, that is the second tradition, and so in his book he actually investigates each and every philosopher that he can think of and assigns him either to the rational side or to the non-rational side and if you actually take those two strands apart in his book, then you find that he has actually written a history of what we now would call Western esotericism, because all the currents that that fall short of his criteria of rationality end up in the field of superstitious, crypto-pagan, irrational, false 
types of uh, philosophy. Now, what happens then is that uh, Brucker becomes the foundation for the modern history of uh, philosophy as it is written ever since. Everybody takes his cue on Brucker. People don't realize, for instance, the famous uh, Encyclopédie by Diderot, one of the one of the most famous books of the Enlightenment. Almost everything that you find there about philosophy is taken, uh, plagiarized from Brucker. So Brucker is actually the omnipresent source for history of uh, philosophy in the Encyclopédie of the big book of the of the Enlightenment. That's Brucker. Now, what happens? After that, uh, historians of philosophy, uh, the emerging academic uh, history of philosophy, well, they've, they've got to the point, okay, this is true philosophy, rational, and there's all this other stuff, that's not true philosophy. So when we write a history of philosophy from now on, we don't include it anymore. We might uh, add, uh, put it in a footnote, mm. but uh, we are not writing a history of false philosophy, we are writing a history of true philosophy. That's Descartes, that is, uh, and, and so on. But uh, it's Kant and whatever. But it is certainly not Ficino, and it is not Paracelsus, and it is not all these people. That is, that's false philosophy. Why write a history of philosophy which includes false philosophy? No. So you throw it out. And other emerging academic fields do not take up the field either. So history of, uh, history of Christianity has no interest in including uh, these pagan heretical forms of false Christianity as they see it in the history of Christianity because it's not true Christianity, it's false Christianity. It may be uh, discussed as heresy, but not as Christianity. And no other discipline takes it up. So what happens is that you have this whole field of, uh, well, the kind of knowledge that Brucker has rejected, rejected knowledge, it becomes academically homeless. There is no academic discipline that takes it up. It becomes the kind of field that you know exists, but the authoritative uh, historians don't treat it, don't talk about it. And uh, of course, it becomes um, it becomes the topic uh, par excellence, which academics say that is it's dangerous for your reputation probably to write about it, but because people might think that you are actually taking this stuff seriously, and you don't do that, it's not good for your reputation. So don't talk about this superstitious and dangerous stuff. It's all stupidity. It's nonsense. Uh, there is an, uh, one of the founders of the history of, of, of philosophy as a discipline, Heumann. Um, he's in Göttingen. He's the founder of the first uh, academic journal for history of philosophy ever. And in the second volume uh, of the second issue, he has a long, uh, long article about how to separate philosophy from false philosophy. And it's exactly the Brucker kind of argument. He makes an argument for basically not only disregarding and rejecting all this false uh, false traditions, but actually um, uh, destroying them. He says, we have all these sources, these ancient sources and medieval sources about things like magic and superstition and alchemy and astrology. It's nonsense. It's not true. It's false. He says, we have to destroy it. It, it deserves no place in any legitimate library. It uh, has to be dumped into the sea of oblivion, as he calls it. And it's, he's actually advocating destroying sources wow. because it's nonsense. I mean, it's why should we bother about it? So that's the attitude. And that's the attitude that, that's become central in the 19th century, uh, throughout the 19th century. So the only, at one point, the only people who are still writing about this stuff are amateurs 
we usually have a very weak sense of, of historical criticism and, and introduce all kinds of fantasies that have nothing, nothing to do with historical truth. And um, publishing uh, entrepreneurs, people who just want to make a good buck, uh, selling a book about all this weird uh, superstitious stuff about the ancient superstitions of ancient people. And there's an audience for that. But that is a kind of pulp literature. Academic literature doesn't take it seriously anymore. Now, now I've reached the point that it's a long story. Yeah. Esotericism and the academy rejected knowledge in Western culture. What I'm saying, and that's what I do in the final chapter of the book, is that in the study of esotericism, we are studying all this stuff that has been, been rejected for these historical reasons. I'm not claiming that, uh, that there is more... Well, let me now put it differently. The amount of actual consistency between all these currents is debatable. I doubt whether there is such a thing as the esoteric tradition. I think this is a, what I call a wastebasket of all kinds of discarded stuff. There are certain similarities, and there are certain similarities, but it's very disparate as well. Mm. Uh, this whole wastebasket, that's what, what we are studying. Why are we studying it? Not in order to say, well, this is the truth, and uh, this, uh, and we have to uh, get back to the to the esoteric truth that has been discarded. A lot of esoteric apologists have been saying that, and they are, they are, they are free to do that. We they can, can make we it. We can argument. study them too. Yeah, we can study them too. But uh, but what I think we should should be doing is simply study this stuff because it's there. It's not a question of saying uh, I believe in it or not believe in it. Uh, maybe I find it uh, nonsense or not. It is undisputable that these are very important uh, dimensions of Western culture that we don't know about uh, because we have discarded them since the 19th century and we have acted as if they didn't exist. And if we do that, we uh, end up with a very one-sided, false, distorted view of Western culture because we no longer recognize these currents when we encounter them. And when we encounter them, and when we recognize them, we do not know what to do with them because we don't have a scholarly literature that is able to to analyze them and understand what they are saying. So what we're doing, we are di discarding them and marginalizing them. And you end up with a kind of a um, cleaned up, sanitized, uh, rationalized uh, view of Western culture, which is basically false it's because it doesn't include this current. So what I'm advocating, that's the last point then, is an, what I call an anti-eclectic historiography. That's another key term. And what I mean with this is that in the 18th century, it's the century of eclecticism. Historians of, of philosophy before the 18th century used to say, okay, you're studying the history of, of Platonism, and then you include all the Platonists. Uh, you know, everybody has something to say. Whatever they have to say, it all has to go into your book. The principle of the Enlightenment history of philosophy is eclecticism. They say, no. We only pick out what is valuable, what we consider valuable. So you have an eclectic uh, choice. You pick out the wheat and you discard the chaff. Uh, that's eclectic historiography, and that is what uh, we've been dealing with ever since. So my argument is that we need an anti-eclectic historiography. And that doesn't mean that you don't choose. Every historian chooses what to focus on. You have to choose. You cannot focus on everything. But what anti-eclectic historiography means is that we cannot allow our... Um, our way of describing the history of Western culture to be dominated by uh, apologetic, ideological ideas about false and true. We have to give equal attention to all the main currents that we encounter, whatever we may think of them ourselves personally. It has, it's there and it deserves to be taken seriously. Basically, the, the ultimate ambition of Western esotericism, as I see it, 
is much more than just studying a bunch of weird uh, currents that we have forgotten that we don't know about. That's also, we're also doing that, and that's a great lot of fun. But the bigger, ambi the bigger ambition is to change the whole narrative of Western culture. We can begin with Plato right there. I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was teaching about these things, and there was one of the students in the class, a philosopher, who got quite upset when I said that Plato had a mystical, religious, uh, spiritual kind of perspective. He said, no, it's not true. And I said, well, read the Phaedrus. I said, and so I, I got the Phaedrus and the Symposium and several other sources. I said, it's there. I mean, you cannot, uh, cannot deny that it's right there on the page. Yes, and he couldn't deny it. It, completely, it confused him completely because uh, he had been told always that Plato is the founder of Western philosophy and philosophy is a rational thing. It was very worrying to him, but it's true. And it is, uh, it's irrefutable. It's in the sources right mm. there. And so Plato is one example. But if you then continue that, you will find this one century after the other. You'll find again and again and again that we've read these sources from a biased, one-sided, ideological view, and we have not seen everything that's there. And that has huge implications. It means that the entire narrative of Western culture has to change. So the study of esotericism is not just studying weird stuff. It's actually integrating the weird stuff and realizing that some of the normal stuff is weirder than we thought, and some of the weird stuff is maybe not so weird. Not if you if you look at it from the perspective of the people at the time. We have to um, yeah we have to start basically almost from scratch integrating all this stuff into our understanding of our own culture. Well, let's get on with it then. Yeah, Wouter Hanegraaf, that's a perfect stopping point. Um, so thank you very much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. And sharing your bird's eye perspective on the field. I'd like also to thank Vouter's cat and local builders for providing KG and uh, improvised background to our interview. Until next time, stay esoteric. <laughs>